Welcome to When We Speak, where we shed stigmas, say goodbye to shame, strengthen ourselves, and encourage others. I am your host, Tasha Hunter. This is a podcast where I am blending the intersections of race, gender, sexuality, faith, and trauma. If there is a topic that most people say we're not supposed to talk about, I'm talking about it because that is how we heal. We don't heal in silence. We heal by speaking out. So thank you so much, Alicia, for saying yes to being on my podcast. And I've been following you on social media and just really wanted to talk about disordered eating and and Black women and our bodies and just all of the things that that we go through uh, and the complicated relationships that we sometimes have with our bodies and, and with eating just due to all the things, whether that's trauma or uh, white supremacy or whatever, just all the things. So thank you so much for, for being here today. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. If you could um, tell listeners a little bit about yourself. Yeah. So my name is Alicia McCullough. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm a licensed mental health therapist and a counselor by discipline. And so within the therapy work, I do um, work around trauma, eating disorders, disordered eating, um, and of course, work with folks around anxiety, depression, and other concerns too. But mostly that trauma work, the disordered eating and eating disorders for Black, Brown, Indigenous people of color. So that's the majority of my clinical work. And then outside of that, I also own Black and Embodied Counseling and Consulting, which is where I do mostly consulting work around body image, eating disorders, or even work around decolonizing therapy. Um, Outside of that work, I also um, lead a eating disorder support group for Black folks, which is a global group where anybody can join from anywhere, Um, and also am the founder of the Holistic Black Healing Collective, which is an online healing collective for Black, Brown, Indigenous people of color, and also currently in the process of writing a book called Reclaiming the Black body specifically around all of the topics that we're talking about today oh i love it i love it and cannot wait to check out that book i think it's so needed especially i've dealt with disordered eating for a really long time Mm -hmm. and even hearing you talk i can even trace the roots of when that started you know and my parts just needing comfort needing something that I could be in control of you know and and plus other reasons and so I'm so glad that you do this work that so many of us need and it even makes me think Alicia that a lot of people now I know that 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 disordered eating is is prevalent in our community yeah but I don't know that it's as well talked about yes And, and you know and named and so is it that it's it's less acknowledged or is it that it's less prevalent in the black community? Mm-hmm. And so what I'll say is, and a quote actually came up for me when I thought about that, and it's a quote by Rez Mominican that says, these patterns, when I think about these patterns of food, he talks about trauma decontextualized in a person looks trauma decontextualized in a family looks like family traits and trauma in a people looks like culture or bodies of culture and so it reminded me even thinking about our eating in that I think the disordered eating that we're seeing is so normalized that we're just like oh this is just the way we eat and not recognizing that it has deep-rooted ties to trauma white supremacy and anti-blackness in this country um specifically the United States because I know we probably have people from all over but you know it's all tied to those things. And so I think that's really important to 
name firstly. And I would say too, that um, when I think about eating disorders or disordered eating, I think it has a high prevalence in our community when we look at it from a trauma lens. And so one of the things that I think is important for folks to know is that eating disorders are biopsychosocial spiritual illnesses, and they impact people of all colors, races, body sizes, you know, back socioeconomic background, all across the board, sexual orientation, gender, you know, all across the board. And they have physical and mental impacts with it as well. And so we have the physical things you can see with folks with eating disorders, such as for some people that might have an extreme form of an eating disorder, they might notice that they're having issues with their teeth or dental issues, or they're having um, body issues where they're maybe underweight or even, you know, again, I, I like to say eating disorders don't have a body shape or size. So people that restrict can also, you know, have a bigger body size and that's fine as well. And so it impacts people physically, but also mentally, and that it's having those, it, it's a biological issue. And so it's having those mental components around, um, you know, the, the desire, like you mentioned, um, the control, right? The control kind of pushes forth this this behavior in a lot of ways. And so again, it has both the mental and the physical impacts. When, when you said that it doesn't have a look, a shape, a size. Yes there's this misconception that if you have this quote unquote by society standards, a fit body. Yes. That, oh, well, no, you, you can't have an eating disorder. You can't have a complicated or unhealthy relationship with your body, but that's so not true. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can be fit. You can be in the gym and still <laughs> have some issues as it relates to food or even uh, body dysmorphia and all of these different things tied in together. Yes, absolutely. Yep. And I, and I think when you were talking about that, the first image that came to mind and, and in my family and even thinking about in community, this um, myth almost in that we usually use the word anorexia, for example, for someone who's like really small and we just label them that like, oh, they're, anore- um, they're anorexic if they're small. Um, and we always think for people that are bigger, oh, they're dealing with like a quote unquote overeating or something like that. And so these are the misconceptions and stigma that are put on these diagnoses, which are not actually true. And I actually wanted to bring in what exactly these categories are. And so when we look at anorexia nervosa, it is restricting the amount of nourishment needed for your body, right? And so we all have different needs that for our bodies. And so if you're restricting to the point where you're not meeting your nutritional needs, that is what we would label as anorexia nervosa. And so again, nothing to do with body shape or size, but super individualized to what you need, you know, for your own body. Um, when we look at bulimia, for example, um, it does relate to people that might binge eat but it also is followed by compulsory behaviors such as purging or using laxatives or diuretics to purge the food that they're eating. And again, that's something we might have normalized. We might see someone just say, oh, I'm just going to take this pill here and release this from my body, right? And that's just been normalized, you know? And then we look at binge eating, which is eating more while not necessarily being hungry to the point of being uncomfortably full. And then also followed by experiencing shame with that as well. And so again, it's not that the person is quote unquote overeating because what is overeating to begin with, right? Um, but it's more so like you're eating to the point where you're uncomfortably full, where you're getting sick, you know, that when you're eating, you're um, eating to that point. And it's also, again, followed by the shame, which 
what I've seen in my practice is that that shame often then leads to a restriction and then goes back into the restrict binge cycle. So it's almost like this constant continual cycle that's happening. And then I'll say too, then we have like an avoiding restrictive, which is not necessarily tied to like a body image per se, but it's more like a sensory type of thing. And so that could be, you know, a fear of choking on your food or worrying and obsessing about the food you're eating or even textures. And I'd say we have to also bring in, when we look at that, the disability lens, because a lot of folks that might have sensory concerns, we think about, you know, autism spectrum disorder, you know, ADHD, other types of concerns that might correlate with that as well, and how that shows up in our communities. And then lastly, I'd say orthorexia. And so orthorexia is essentially this idea, this obsession with clean eating, and I put quote in quotes besides clean eating, um, because what is clean eating? Because what's the opposite of that? Dirty eating. And it's like, what is dirty eating? And I I'd always ask folks, if your food is like literally dirty, like it's been on the ground, that's that. Yeah. Okay. That might be dirty food. Right. Or if it has some type of fungus or virus that that might be dirty food, but we can't label food as clean or dirty or unhealthy or, or healthy because a lot of times we have this mentality in our country where we say um, you are what you eat. And so if we're looking at people saying, oh, you're eating dirty food or you're eating clean food, then what are we saying about that person? And then what communities is that food mostly in? And what are we saying about those communities? Right. Oh, my God. You just listen. The only term I was unaware of was the orthorexia. And I love that mm -hmm. because we don't often include that lifestyle, that way of thinking. Yes. As being a part of like the disordered eating community. It really sounds like it's it's a wide spectrum. Yes. And so that especially that part about clean eating. Mm hmm. <laughs> because there's so much privilege in even making that statement, right? Yes. Like you just said, what, when you're thinking of like clean eating or or on the opposite end, dirty eating, mm -hmm. now we're looking at like socioeconomic, right, you know, yes. levels and, and we're looking at race and what, what does that, what does that really mean? So, yes. um, and so those people that are really promoting quote unquote clean eating, there's a lot of privilege in that. You're saying a lot in that one statement. Yep, exactly that. Exactly. And again, I think, too, when we look at it again from a trauma perspective, trauma impacts our biology, like our epigenetics, you know, our health. So those environmental factors we were just bringing in when we talked about that, as well as our psychology and our spiritual selves, like how we view ourselves just as a spirit and soul being. And so all of that is showing up when we look at trauma. And for Black folks, I think it really shows up as diet culture, our internalization of that. I think it shows up as healthism. And so this idea that we have to be healthy, quote unquote, and, you know, we we see that so many times in folks, you know, we get these labels of, well, you all deal with high blood pressure or diabetes or, you know, these other things at, high, at higher rates than other communities, but we're not looking at, well, we had different experiences in this country than other communities, right? And so like trauma does impact the way that we process stress. Stress is trauma. And so if we are holding on to that for generations and generations and generations unaddressed and it gets stored in our bodies, then of course we're going to have high blood pressure that, you know, that's kind of like a, a thing that's with it. that. And so, yeah. And so it's kind of like, how do we get back to the trauma? What, what are we really working through here? The eating mostly is a symptom of a coping strategy of the trauma. And so let's stop looking at the eating and kind of more like, you know, blaming that or shaming that and move into like, what is the trauma and how do we work through that on the back end? That's the root of everything. It's that yeah. trauma. Yep. Conversation can't be about bodies and food and all of these other things. 
Yep. If we're not looking at what is the root cause, what led to that, you've got to address that. So I love that you just mentioned that. How do we start the conversation about the complicated relationship? How do we address it in our communities, in our families, in our relationships? I think a lot of times people are afraid to bring up any issue of it because we don't want to seem, we don't want to, you know, seem like we're judging people. Yes. And then there's this whole, you know, you need to mind your business. Yes. <laughs> yes. So, so I'm wondering how do we address it with people that we love, that we either we see that the concern is there for a specific person or how do we just start the conversation? Because we know that it's in our communities, like we talked about before, it's prevalent in our in the black community. Yes. But how do we how do we bring up these topics? Yeah, I think that's so important because I think again, when we think about eating in general, there's a lot of shame around it. Even when and I'm thinking back to multiple experiences myself of having conversations with family members and the tension that happens in our bodies when those conversation comes up. And I think the tension is information, right? In that it's like, okay, there's something there. And so one, listening to our bodies around that. But I think there's a couple of things around even the fact that for our communities, we kind of it's almost like we're fighting something but we don't know exactly where it is like you know it's that that thing in the dark right and I and I want to name for folks that when we look at these systems of diet culture healthism and fat phobia that what it's really tied to is anti-blackness white supremacy and racism and so for example, with diet culture in the 18th and 19th century, the slender ideal and restrictive dieting was associated with beauty. And that was a direct response to enslaved Africans being bought over to the United States. And so even hearing that, it really even points to, OK, this is this is what this comes from here, you know, and so I, I have somewhere to I have the origins of where this started. And then even we look at, for example, the healthy and unhealthy binaries, we know that binaries are a function of white supremacy. And we look at gender binaries, for example. And so even looking at that and saying, okay, when when we're doing these health isms and saying I have to be absolutely healthy or absolutely not, these all or nothing thinking patterns, I'm not allowing room for the gray and to see what else sits there in between all of that. Where is that tension at within all of that? And then we look at fat phobia, even um, looking at racist science, our bodies were associated with laziness, ungodliness, ugliness. And so we have to think which populations has trauma impacted at higher rates and in whose body was this put onto? And why are we now taking these systems and put them on, onto ourselves? So that internalization of it. And so I think one is the education around like we've internalized a lot, but then I think it's the compassion around and it's not your fault. You know, like I think a lot of times we take that and we think, oh, gosh, I've done all these things. But no, it's not your fault. We all live in a system that's inundated by these messages. So as a byproduct, we've taken those messages on. And so I think of coming at it with a heart of compassion versus this heart of like judgment and condemnation um, could be really helpful. And I love the education piece around it, especially talking about the ties going back to our people being enslaved. Yes. And how they viewed us and yep. our bodies, which were, this is how God created us, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. And then how they countered that with, oh, no, this is an acceptable body. This yes. is what you should look like. Yep. So how much of being skinny or being a certain, you know, weight, weight and height and all of these measures, how much of that is tied to white supremacist views? Yes. Of mm -hmm. what are acceptable bodies. And it makes me think about, I was on a podcast um, last year with um, Marcy Alvis Walker of Black Coffee, White Friends and some other, some other Black women. And um, 
And so we were talking about Sarah Bartman. Yes. Mm -hmm. And it makes me think about, I mean, perfect example of how her body was viewed. Yes. And abused and all of these things and what they did to her. And, you, you know, and so what they did then is said, oh, you know, if you're a white woman, basically, this is what you should look like. There mm-hmm. is an animal. She's unacceptable. She's disgusting. Yes. Look at her big butt. Look at her thighs. All of these things. We don't want you to look like that. Mm-hmm. So anyhow, maybe that's a, ha- me having a squirrel moment, but it just made me really think about, you know, just that image and look at we're still at that point. Yes, today. yes. Yes, absolutely. And exactly what you said is so connected. Um, The book uh, Fearing the Black Body by Sabrina Strings really mm-hmm. ties that in, brings in Sarah Barton, and it even goes through the history of all these things to find the origins of where did fat phobia come from? Where did diet culture? So you're so spot on when you said that it's all interconnected. When our bodies came over here, they became hypersexualized spectacles for everybody to see something that people were fearful of. And so, of course, because it was different, instead of like embracing difference, as we haven't done so far in this country, there was this uh, immediate like apprehension to it and this immediate um, turning it into this devilish type of thing or this evil type of thing, quote unquote. So, yeah, absolutely. Alicia, how do we, you know, as black women find safe space, safe spaces to name our pain, to get support um, again, in dealing with uh, our relationship with food, our relationship, uh, you know, with our bodies, uh, what do we do to like to get support with that? For sure. And so what I say is finding safe spaces to have these conversations. So I think even with this podcast that we've talked about so far, this is something that maybe you can bring in with your friends and say, like, let's listen to this, you know, let's kind of unpack where our own in ways that we've internalized the systems. How are we showing up with this right now in our own bodies? So I think that's one is like maybe holding space for these conversations, but even the eating disorder support group that I lead, you know, maybe or, or co-lead with a friend, letting people come into that space and, um, you know, have a chance to process and talk through everything. Um, I'd also say um, the, the Body Liberation Collective is another uh, project I'm working on right now for folks to really get more information about these things. Um, specifically for Black folks. And so that could be another area. Um, And then I'd say like different podcasts. I mean, definitely this podcast here for sure. And then I also thought about um, a podcast called Unsolicited FTB, um, which is a podcast specifically around body image and fat liberation and things like that, as well as My Black Body podcast, um, which is another podcast around that as well too. And so I'm thinking um, for our communities, a lot of times we get a lot of power in storytelling and these podcasts, these like, um, close-knit group settings and in the one-on-one, I think are bringing back that medicine and allowing us to explore these con- these concepts and talk about ways that we've internalized them. I love that they're, that we're living in a day and age where all of these resources exist. Yes. And I'm going to try to put everything that you listed in the show notes so that people can go and check out the different podcasts, the books that you reference, everything. Yes. Um, I, and I think it's a perfect time, really, because of media and technology, where we can have open and honest conversations. Yes. And say, say this isn't just a you thing, it's an us thing. Mm-hmm. If we continue not talking about it, not naming it, not yep. getting help for it, we're going to continue to die because of it. Yes. No, I mean, it's just like, you know, we're going to continue to suffer because we're not acknowledging it. There's so much fear, so much shame. And then there's this whole component of, uh, and sometimes in our families, 
of, well, oh no, this is how we've always been. Mm-hmm. This, mm-hmm. Is, this is how we eat. This is what we do. Mm-hmm. But it's killing us and it's tied to trauma. Yes, absolutely. And to, to your point, I'll say eating disorders are actually the number one um, most deadly illness of all mental health illnesses that we have in our DSM. So one, let's name that. And then alongside of that, Black, brown, indigenous people of color have higher rates actually of eating disorders than a European white population. So even sitting with that information, we're the ones suffering at higher rates, not only because we're not talking about it, because even when we go to our providers, they're not asking us the same questions. And also if we're showing up in different bodies, bringing in intersectionality, such as in bigger bodies or bodies that are trans or bodies that are disabled, then it's even less of a chance that we're being asked about eating disorders and it's often more so ignored, ignored by our providers. And so again, there's so many layers to it. It's the medical side of it. It's our own side of not talking Talking about it and normalizing it, like you said, with the this is just the way we eat, you know, um, all of that contributing to us actually having worse, you know, overall mental health or holistic health outcomes when we talk when we're talking about this. Absolutely. Can you speak to the importance or, you know, earlier via email, we were having, you know, kind of this dialogue about what, what does it mean when we say decolonizing, you know, our therapy or decolonizing our beliefs or, or whatever, what is the difference between anti-colonial versus uh, decolonizing? And I don't even know if I'm saying that right, but but can you speak to the difference, especially as it relates to this conversation? Absolutely. And I think that's so on point. And so one of the things I think about is this year, you know, decolonization became, and I'll say last year too, in 2020, decolonization became a buzzword, right? Yeah. We're decolonizing <laughs> everything, you know, as we should, to be quite honest, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but I want to say, you know, decolonizing, from my understanding, is repatriation of land and life. And so um, I had did a presentation about it. And one of the things that came up was, you know, even when we decolonize, it's such a deep rooted process and in bringing in indigenous sovereignty in that some things that we have now, like our land that's been abused through ecocide, you know, the lives that were already murdered and killed, you know, like we can't get those back necessarily. And so when we talk about decolonization, it does need to be indigenous led, but also, you know, we have to think about some of these resources are already already gone, you know, like well, animals that are already gone and extinct because of colonization. And so I think for decolonization, it's a more of a deeper intentional process of recentering those who experience the trauma the most. And I think when we look at more anti-colonialism, anti-colonialism is kind of being against the systems that were the roots of colonization. So of course, patriarchy, um, homophobia, uh, transphobia, ableism, fat phobia, like all of these systemic things that came from that being directly in opposition to it. And that's where I see myself currently in the movement. And in thinking about this conversation, I, I kind of sat with it because I'm like, and I feel like I'm a little in between at times too. And so one of the things I think about when it comes to healing our body from a decolonizing or even anti-colonial perspective is when we look at trauma and healing. And so I think if we look at our bodies in, a, in the framework of trauma and healing, we can actually decolonize through returning back our indigenous 
practices. Um, this past year, I read the book, The Healing Wisdom of Africa from Melodoma Patrice Somme, who recently passed away. Um, and I just learned so much about what it means to be rooted in my own West African culture, um, different techniques, different traditional tra traditions. And even this past year, I was actually renamed into my Nigerian Igbo um, culture as well through um, initiation ceremony. So that in itself was a special process of me even finding a piece of myself and returning back to my body. And so that was that felt really, really special. And I'd say, you know, we do that through creating ancestral altars so that we can become closer to our ancestors and what they know and, and soaking in their wisdom and allowing for that to download and by venerating them. I mean, they were wise people and their spirits still are with us. You know, we can still access that knowledge. And so I'd say those are some ways that we can decolonize for ourselves as Black people, of course, bringing in things like plant medicine. Um, I know a lot of folks who practice uh, hoodoo, which were um, practices used by enslaved Africans in the United States and all throughout um, the diaspora. And so using those techniques that we had um, to return back to our bodies. And then I'd say more anti-colonial way, um, it's really being against the system of capitalism. That's what really stands out for me. Um, and so I think one of the things I struggle with as a Black woman is resting. I'm always on the go, always doing everything, you know, all the things. And I think that for me, a way of being anti-colonial is allowing myself to rest and disconnect from the systems that, you know, want me to be disconnected from myself. And I've learned a lot around being back connected to myself through my activism work, um, but also through working with somatic practitioners and getting more information about being in my body and being embodied in the moment. Those are the things that have helped me return back. And so I think there's, you know, those are the ways that we can both be decolonial and anti-colonial and anti-colonial when returning back to our bodies. Yes, to, um, my heart is so full listening to you as you talk about who do you talk about West African spirituality? Yes, even you know, including plant medicine. Yes, all of the things that really are our birthright. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All the things that were taken from us. Yes, and a lot of what you name. <laughs> has been even taken by the colonizers, right? Yes. They're profiting off of, you know, all of these indigenous practices. Yes. They're mm -hmm. profiting off of it right now. So, so us taking it back, claiming it as ours, it was always ours. Yes. And this, it has to be included, in my opinion, in our healing. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. You know, yes. um, we don't have to rely on the medical model is fine. We don't have to rely on it, though. It's exactly. not the only way. Exactly. So if we get back to our roots, get back to what did our ancestors do? Yes. I mean, and obviously, I don't know if you know, but so I'm, you know, really involved in the plant medicine community and, and all of that. And so uh, I'm like, yes, Alicia, that's yes. exactly, um, because then you allow the spirit to really talk to you about what do you need and really, um, speaking to that trauma. Mm -hmm. I mean, in a real way, in a way that, that nothing wrong with medication, but in a way that Lexapro and Wellbutrin and, and all of the other medicines, it's plant medicine can do with, with the other, you know. <laughs> the pharmaceutical yes. industry what the pharmaceutical industry can't do i'm just speaking my truth i think that when we when we go back to hoodoo when we go back to west african spirituality um and all of these things and resting yes um and and not being so focused on producing because that is based in white supremacy and capitalism mm -hmm. as well as patriarchy so when we get back to our roots we heal ourselves and we heal the next generation 
Yes, absolutely. And Tasha, I was literally over here jumping for joy <laughs> as you were talking. Um, and mostly because I was thinking about um, how a lot of times, even when I first heard this, I, of course, being in this Western Eurocentric, you know, society, I think for myself sometimes that it has to be like a physical presence. Like, oh, you want me to talk to my ancestors? Well, they're not here. You know, that's what I originally thought. But I, I think it's expanding out because we have to learn we've been given a worldview that doesn't necessarily align with our indigenous worldview black people you know and so a lot of that is knowing that the, there's a lot of power in the unseen and so I had to learn that um, especially being raised as a Christian I could also you know correlate that and say oh we do say um, faith without works is dead oh we do say that there's belief in the unseen so I can map that on and say that's absolutely true. My people and their spirit is still alive today, you know? And I think too, even when we look at plants, a part of me was like, well, I can't go back to the continent right now. But even something I learned recently was like, even going outside and putting your hand on a tree with the intention of you connect with the mycelium that you have back into my land, because it's all connected. The root systems are all connected underground and send the message back to the land of my ancestors. And that message then reverberates back into me. And even hearing that, for myself was so powerful and knowing again I don't have to actually go to connect I can connect right where I'm at right now and that in itself was like mind-blowing for me that's it connecting right where you are and then making that a regular practice yes yeah Mm -hmm. so I love everything that you just said I would have to say we could probably heal from anything yes and not even we can Yes. So um, I don't know what what do you have to say in terms of, you know, anybody thinking, you know, can I heal from this? If I have anorexia, if I have bulimia. No worries. And, you know, honestly, my first thought was the same as yours. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, it was the same. And I think it's because I've been in the system as a provider. You know, I've seen folks go in and out of inpatient treatment and, you know, residential treatments. And a lot of the response is that while my eating disorder was addressed, I was further traumatized because the place was not racially or culturally competent or focused on liberation, you know? And so that was a big Mm -hmm. response. And so it's like, you're treating the symptom, but not actually the root of the issue, you know? And that's where I think, like you said, we got to bring back in our own healing practices, our own wisdom, and our body has it. Our body has that wisdom inside, but we have to have, you know, enough capacity. And I say that in a way of like, working with someone to build enough capacity so that we can come back into ourselves and listen intuitively to what we already have within, you know, and that allowing that to lead us through the healing. Like, yes, all of these modalities that we have out here are great. You know, I think those are helpful. They're supplemental. And at the same time, again, what we need is black people to heal from eating disorders is different. And a lot of that is going back into the body and working through that trauma, the trauma of now that we're dealing with in this current time, the collective trauma, as you mentioned. And also I'd say the ancestral trauma, the trauma of the ancestor where the disruption occurred with the eating, you know, like working with that energy. And so I think it is multi-layered and multifaceted and working with the trauma, but I, I do think it's like a, a combination of both. And I'm hoping that, you know, these eating disorder facility treatments and facilities and inpatients and residentials will pick up on this and hopefully bring in and start rebuilding the core of what their practice is. Cause this is definitely for our community, but this expands out beyond as well. This, you can't, yeah. um, expect I think there was a quote that said um we have to look at the most marginalized among us when it comes to healing we just can't say like oh well it's me if the most marginalized is not healed then nobody is healed so we need to keep that in mind oh that's powerful that is so Mm -hmm. powerful 
So um, now we get to kind of like the fun questions, right? And when I ask this next question, um, listeners have heard me say it. I'm thinking about Mother Oprah. Yes. Um, So what do you know for sure about self-love? Yeah. You know, when I thought about that question, I thought about this past year for me. It's been a real big journey of of self-love. I had a lot of transition occur. I was telling you before the podcast, I actually moved to a new state. And so starting over, um, building new connections and friendships and relationships, that's been its own challenge. Um, But the quote that actually stood out, and it it really touches my heart, um, it's a Bell Hooks quote, um, especially considering that we recently just lost her. And so um, she just inspired me so much. And the quote that really stood out to me was, one of the best guides to how to be self-loving is to give ourselves the love that we are often dreaming about receiving from others. And that's a journey that I've taken this whole year as I've transitioned and moved. It's really given myself what I want to receive from others. And that has been transformational for me is getting to know myself, taking myself out on dates, um, doing kind things for myself. Like that's been really, really helpful in building that love capacity. And so um, that's the quote that I would say really stands with me and really touches my heart considering you know this past week for sure that quote is everything and I think it's at the heart of the work that we do with people is teaching them how you build a relationship with yourself yes how do you how do you you know return back to your inner child Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know for me that would be young Tasha and for all the things that she never had yes how can I now give that to her You'll be fine. You yes, you can you can heal from 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 eating disorders. You can heal from anything. Yeah. Start loving yourself. Yes. And that's the hard work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's 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 I mean, we talk a lot about self-love, but that is, in my opinion, the hardest thing is okay, how do I do this? Yes. What does that even look like? Yes. Yeah. And I think, Tasha, even you hear saying that part about what does this look like? You know, I thought about that and, and I even thought about people that might be like, where do I start? And I have that a lot where people are like, well, where do I start this journey? And one of the things I'll say is if you need something concrete, think about the five love languages. And I there's more, um, But if we just look at those and say, OK, now, how do I apply it to myself? For example, words of affirmations. What are the thoughts that you're, you're that are going through your mind throughout the day? What are the things you're saying to yourselves? I heard a, a quote somewhere that said um, our thoughts. And our and the words we say to ourselves are prayers, you know, and so like knowing that we're manifesting the way that we feel about ourselves all the time. And so it's like, what are you thinking? That's that words of affirmation. I think quality time, like spending time by yourself, you know, doing deep breathing exercises where you're going through your body and being intentional about where are my emotions today? What am I feeling? What are the sensations that are coming up in my body? Um, I'd say two acts of service, like getting a massage, if you like, you know, doing some stretching throughout the day, doing some yoga. Um, even if you want to give gifts to yourself, maybe it's like actually buying clothes that fit your body and not forcing yourself into things that don't fit, you know, like taking care of yourselves in that way. And then also physical touch. So being sensual with yourself, you know, allowing yourself to give yourself intimacy, even going for a walk or engaging in mindful movement. I don't even use the word exercise anymore. I just say, you know, I'm just doing movement today. I'm doing mindful movement today. And so even giving yourself those, like, um, like you said, the gratitude, and it just really reminded me like love is a ritual and um, compassionately attuning is the medicine. So, you know, I think that in itself really tells me like I have to make this a practice, but it's also about attuning to my body and listening to what my body needs all the time because it's always communicating and I just have to be there to listen to what it needs. 
Alicia, can you please copyright and make some merch <laughs> that says love is a ritual? I got you. <laughs> That's yours. Can nobody take that? You just said it. You're going to copyright it. I need to, that is so beautiful. Love is a ritual. Yes. I mean, that says so much and it's such a beautiful ritual. Yes. Mm-hmm. So anyhow, thank you for that. Of course. Um, if you are listening to music, what kind of music gives you joy? Yeah. So I have this whole like um, playlist on my iPhone and it's um, by Paola Hernandez and it's called I'm Thriving. Mm-hmm. I would recommend everybody to download it if you have iPhone. It is even on YouTube, too, because I, I play it on my TV sometimes. So it's mm-hmm. called I'm Thriving by um, Paola Hernandez. And it's just, just this like powerful playlist around like um, self-love and affirmation and being hype and just like knowing you're all that like that's the energy that I that I need <laughs> to wake up to. And so it's, it's just really good vibes. And so that's the music I've been listening to. And I guess another song that's kind of related to that playlist is the one called I Am Woman by Emmy yeah. um, Melly. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. Now that's another one that gets me in a good mood, good energy. So those are like the songs I've been listening to recently, especially at the end of the year. I'm like, I just need to pick me up, you know, before yeah. we close off. <laughs> oh, I love that. And then who or what makes you laugh? Yes. So I thought about my my um two good friends um they came and visited me in Maryland um this past weekend and when I tell you we had such a great time just laughing about random things and so um my friends really make me laugh and my dog who's currently running around right now <laughs> with her ball is also someone who makes me laugh so yeah that was that's what brings me joy and makes me laugh and then who or what inspires you you know, I would say, honestly, Black women inspire me. And really, it's just like Black women living, Black women existing, just being, you know, that's what inspires me to wake up every day and say, I can do this. You know, there's other, we're like, I'm not alone in this journey. And so that's what, that's who inspires me is Black women. So for anybody listening uh, that wants to uh, connect with you, that wants to join follow you on social media or or even just join or support any of the groups that you have or the work that you're doing out here uh, in whatever capacity that they can uh, how do they how do they connect with you for sure and so I am on Instagram at black and embodied on Instagram and then my website is black and and um, to access the groups a lot of those I keep on my website or on my Instagram page but just if folks want to know um, the group that I lead is co- or co-lead is called the black body um, I'm sorry um, the eating disorder group for black people and so that is a group um, led through sanctuary in the city in Charlotte North Carolina and so folks can go on their website or just type in um, eating disorder support group for black folks and it should come up on Google as well. Thank you so much, Alicia. Thank you for being here and I've so enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for having me. I've enjoyed it as well. Thank you so much for listening to When We Speak. Follow me on Instagram at Tasha Hunter LCSW. If you haven't done so yet, please rate, review, and follow me on iTunes and share it on your social media. If you want a copy of my book, What Children Remember, it is available on Amazon. Until next time. Thank you.